Hello and welcome. Uh, we have a amazing show uh, kind of continuing along the um, uh, running all over the internet talking to different people uh, who are related to the cult Divinity Lost Project. Uh, and I have someone who I have immense respect, uh, admiration for, uh, and, and that is Matthew Dawkins, who has been writing uh, TTRPG uh, for how long now? Uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, probably, <laughs> probably something like yeah. uh, five, five or six years. It seems like longer. Oh, may maybe it actually was. It might be seven years. You know. Hmm. Yeah. There you go. I Every time I imagine, I just imagine you like in middle school writing the summit or cult stuff. Oh God, I hope not. Yes. If there was a middle schooler that was writing the summit, uh, I would suggest a counselor. Uh, that would be quite terrifying, uh, yeah. indeed. Um, but not only have you worked uh, for in terms of writing for Helm Gas, the Cult of Divinity Lost, but also Masquerade, uh, Onyx Path Publishing, Chaosium. I mean, they came from beneath the sea. Yeah. So excited about that project. Um, but <laughs> today we are going to focus on uh, Cult Divinity Lost, which I'm a huge fan of. The Summit. When did it yes. first come to you, and, and what kind of inspired you to, to create this this horrific tale? Oh well, so the Summit is a pretty keen. I'm going to say a tribute to J.G. Ballard's High Rise, um, but you could as easily say it's a uh, direct ripoff of J.G. Ballard's High Rise. Uh, I've uh, I've been a massive fan of the works of J.G. Ballard all my life, uh, well, ever since I came to came became familiar with his work, uh, from his short stories to his uh, full novels. Uh, he just has a writing style I particularly enjoy, and his way of portraying dystopia is something that I have always, um, in a way, related to. I suppose. I think the. The common thread he often seems to pursue is almost like a loss of identity for the protagonist. As protagonists mm -hmm. go through terrible events, they just start to kind of be ground down to their most basic, uh, I guess, ego um, more than anything else. And, um, and, you know, it isn't always ego in the sense of arrogance. Uh, it is their most common uh, core drives yeah and in high-rise the novel uh, this happens throughout an entire high-rise apartment block as a movie of it as well released in the last decade and i thought having a high-rise in cult is a bit like having a massive vertical dungeon in any other role-playing game yeah where with every successive uh, floor in the in the high-rise building you would be confronted with worse or just stranger horrors um, now i'm i'm aware that the i guess broader fan base of uh, teroticum and other tales uh, didn't necessarily latch onto the summit like they ha did some of the other stories and i for me that is perfectly fine i was saying to curtis who is editing this episode thank you curtis um <laughs> that you know some people don't get on with Helter Skelter by the Beatles, but may well love Love Me Do or Sgt. Yeah. Pepper or something like that. And I kind of see 
writes the summit and anything else that I write in the same way. Uh, not every single thing is going to appeal to every single player, but when you do find a group who enjoy it, then you you get these amazing reports of horrible uh, events, <laughs> uh, fantastic role play that they've gone through, and it's one of the best things you can get as a designer of RPGs, people telling you about how they played your story. Yeah. So yeah, um, it's I guess the summit has been in the back of my mind since I was probably eighteen, because uh, I think that's when I first read High Rise, and ever since I started role playing, I thought um, how if if you had characters who desperately needed to get to the top of this building for something terribly important, how would you survive the ascension of? horror and vulgarity and disgust that you would be coming up against as you attempted to do so uh, what would you yeah. sacrifice to get there and so you, you mentioned um when you were creating the summit and, and really when it came out uh, with the, the book and everything uh which of course you can anyone watching can pick this up this is amazing uh it, it's definitely different from some of the other stories was that kind of your intention or was that just kind of a, a byproduct of what you were making i think i was just a byproduct i wasn't uh, familiar with the other stories that were being written at the time we were all working in different teams or just as individuals uh, i'm a big fan of uh, some of those other stories i think island of the dead is a fantastic oh, cult yeah. story about a completely different setup to something like the summit mm. uh, that's uh, like a toolbox you can just roam around visit lots of awful locations freely whereas the summit definitely has an impression of linearity at least as soon as you get into the building mm -hmm. um but i yeah it wasn't at all impacted by what the uh, other writers were doing you kind of have a, a nice uh breadth of different uh projects you're you have worked on and are working on i'm sure um what kind of is the approach uh and, and is it any different in terms of how you approach like they came from uh, beneath the sea or just a uh world of darkness uh yeah kind of the darkness game and cult divinity hugely uh i would i mean they came from beneath the sea compared to cult is a bit like comparing a game like pugmire <laughs> to cult because i love working on games like pugmire and they came from beneath the sea but yeah they're almost like a palate cleanser or coming up for oxygen uh that rather than when you're working on cult where you're just kind of deeply wedged between the thighs of some awful archon <laughs> and uh, i like that picture <laughs> And yeah, basically having to deal with whatever you're dealing with. Um, yeah, my process, I guess. Uh, I, I can I can switch on and off between genres pretty easily. Mm -hmm. But if I'm having to write a scenario from scratch, I'll try and uh, immerse myself in the appropriate literature and media in general uh, to get me into that frame of mind. Um, as an example, they came from beneath the sea, which, as of time of recording, we had lots of actual plays of that at the Onyx Path convention we did online uh, nice. and the response for They Came From Beneath the Sea really warmed something cold and dead inside me because it isn't on mass release yet and so I've no idea how it's going to do but the fact that everyone was laughing about it just constantly uh, in a good way um, 
Yeah, really. I mean, I, I did a one shot of it on stream and I, as a GM, I loved it and my players adored playing it. It's just, a, it's a fun kind of mix between the, the that genre. Well, and, and that's the that's the thing. It's a game that you play just for fun. It's mm -hmm. uh, and there aren't that many of them on the market now. For something like that, I would of course watch the B movies upon which it's inspired. Maybe read some movie reviews or analyses of that kind of uh, genre. Um, but then, if I went to something like Cult, I would be reading uh, one of J.G. Ballard's many short stories mm -hmm. or uh, something by Oh, let's think. Um, Ray Bradbury um, or Harlan Ellison uh, excellent authors not everyone has enough time to read and certainly I think people has, have lower attention spans uh, reduced attention spans for reading these days so thankfully there's plenty of TV series and movies that evoke dystopia on Netflix right now there's a movie called The Platform which I believe is Spanish Oh, I love that movie. That was so good. Yeah, it's a brilliant... I mean, it's a bit blatant, but it's a brilliant uh, address of different political structures and how they would work in a, um, in a confined environment. It's kind mm -hmm. of everything condensed, refined, you know, highly, tightly focused. So you see everything from what the capitalist viewpoint would be in a structure like that through to socialism, through to communism, mm -hmm. through to theology and and so on. Now watching something like that, I can watch it and then I can think, okay, so there's some really good ideas represented here. I can start putting them in my writing. Yeah. Um, again, without plagiarizing or anything like that, it's one of the hardest things and one of the reasons I very rarely read fan material is, isn't because I don't think fan material is going to be good. It's because if I read something that's already published, that's already out in the wild, it's got a company stamp on it, yeah. I can take inspiration from it and feel like I'm not cheating someone of their income, if that makes sense. Yeah, Whereas yeah, if it, it does. Where if it's fan material, they may one day want to publish it. They may one day find a company that publishes it. Now, if I've taken inspiration from it, today, tomorrow, next year, or in 10 years' time, inadvertently, I've basically stolen an idea from them. This is how my mind works. Uh, that may result in them being told, you can't publish this anymore because that yeah. idea is already in this book. Um, <laughs> so accessing media that's kind of already out in the wild, in video games as well, lots mm -hmm. of fantastic video games that you can look at for cult. Um, I mean, going back to an old point-and-click, I mentioned Harlan Ellison. Uh, there's a point-and-click adventure game of I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, which on its own is a brilliant title, uh, but I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream is based on a short story by Harlan Ellison, and it is pure cult divinity lost mm -hmm. in the way this game is uh, just rolls out where you've got these five humans that basically humans who have been trapped by some kind of super intelligence on what may well be a far future version of earth and they are basically meant to relive their own personal traumas for the computer's uh, excitement enjoyment yeah. um 
and those humans kind of work together or can work together to try and take the computer down at the end and achieve their own freedom, largely through their own death. Uh, there isn't really a happy ending, but there's very rarely a really blissfully happy, happy ending in Cult Divinity Lost either. Yeah, it's, it doesn't happen. So I want to go back to, to something you, you said that was pretty interesting, and that's what uh, you said, they come from beneath the sea, you know, that you play that just for fun. Yeah. Um, and cult, obviously, you know, we, we approach it, hopefully, to have fun, but obviously there's kind of something, there's another reason we approach it. What, what kind of is the, I guess, your thought process on how you go about playing a game like cult and, and the reason why you do it? Well, the fun element is still there, of mm. course. Um, you may, may want to play a game because you find horror fun, but horror brings about, I guess, what what would you say, a rush of endorphins. It's the old yeah. adrenaline rush. It's the idea of being in danger that can excite you as a player, that can make you think back to this episode of something or that movie or mm -hmm. that role-playing game. Uh, so when running a game of cults, I have in mind my group who I'm going to mm. play for. I would never, I don't think I would ever run cults as like a drop-in session at a convention. I think that would be a bit irresponsible, frankly. Uh, yeah, at least without fun. like a, a whole list of yeah, what and could be. To be honest, even then, what I've found at conventions is sometimes people will turn up at tables, they'll be presented with a list of uh, rules mm -hmm. or guidelines, and they'll think, well, I've got nowhere else to go, so I'm going to sign up. And then when they start feeling uncomfortable, they'll think, yeah. well, I don't want to make the rest of the table uncomfortable, so I'm not going to leave. And they'll get to the end of the game and they'll think, well, that was a horrible experience. <laughs> and yeah. the GM may be none the wiser. So Cult is a game that I think really benefits from having made contact with your group well in advance, discussed some of the subject matter. Mm -hmm. You don't need to do, worry about spoilers or anything like that because games go where they will. But in terms of content, a GM will generally have in mind the kind of main beats of horror. Yeah. As an example, uh, something that's particularly salient today in the world is racism. Mm -hmm. Now, you're not going to, or you shouldn't, just insert racism in a game on the spur of the moment. If you want to portray a character who is racist, probably as an antagonist, and mm -hmm. certainly that's what, how I would encourage it, yeah. um, that's the kind of thing you should know in advance of running. If you're the kind of GM who's just running cult and you think, you know what, I'm going to introduce someone who's just walking down the street, who's just going to start shouting out racist epithets at people, yeah. you're not approaching things with the right degree of maturity. So, to get back to the point, in terms of what I'm trying to get out of games like Cult and what I want players to get out of it is to actually have an experience they can think about in retrospect. An experience that they are actually both enduring and enjoying when they're playing it where you feel bad for what your characters are going through. It's not just torture porn. You're not always just yeah. constantly making characters go through degradation after degradation. But one of the things I think cult 
generally brings to the table is characters will suffer in some way. They may well elevate themselves by making horrible deals, but they are likely to suffer on some kind of moral level. And I think if the story is good enough and the players are good enough and they invest their time and energy into the characters they're playing and the plot, then they will be faced with lots of hard choices. They, again, may have to make sacrifices that they wouldn't yeah. otherwise have to worry about making in a game like They Came From Beneath the Sea or even something more mainstream like D&D or Pathfinder. Um, and by the end of it, they can kind of exhale and think, whew, well, that was one hell of a tale. Yeah. Um, like watching a Lars von Trier movie, you don't necessarily enjoy it but it's one hell of an experience once you've got through it so like obviously the, the summit's a, a pretty uh tough one to to get through uh and that's kind of part of the the appeal of it is it's just kind of it it kind of goes to the the core of, of who you are and just kind of scrapes away at the external like, like you said until you get to like that the i the who i am and and ego and such Mm. Um, when you were writing it, um, was there any, any time when you were like, oh, this was, this might be too much or, um, I, I really need to push maybe this floor a little bit more. Um, yeah, I think the things I generally feel a bit dubious about writing are overly sexual, mm -hmm. uh, pieces of content mainly not because I'm prudish at all. I mean, if I think if I was, I probably wouldn't have written it. Yeah. <laughs> and I certainly wouldn't have written it started and ended with Screams for the uh, book that's currently on Kickstarter. But I think it's because the I know that a lot of players don't enjoy uh, interacting with sexual elements. Yeah. It's the old thing, especially in America, where people are quite happy to massacre a room full of innocence in a game. Like D&D <laughs> um, or Pathfinder. It doesn't go into your head about what you're doing. It's just exactly. But as soon as the sexual element gets introduced, people start feeling a bit uncomfortable. And I, there's something cultural about that. There's something... Um, societal at a mm -hmm. you know quite a historic level but that's part of our hang-up i guess as a society but um that means when i introduced a room i think i think there's a floor where there's basically a load of orifices exposed in mm -hmm. in a in protruding from walls and i was thinking how should i have the players interact with these you know what is the objective here is it just to be crude and yeah. discuss them as they go past um, are they going to have to interact with them and i think by the conclusion of that floor no you don't have to have interacted with them the onus is kind of on the players if they mm -hmm. want to or not because there's especially in inferno terms there's a meat market mentality when it comes to a lot of uh, sexual elements mm -hmm. uh, that things are there to be used and abandoned as uh, horrifying and disgusting as that is and so i wanted there to be a little of that but it's you the, the balance of introducing something 
uh, like that and introducing it in a way that is just deliberately coarse to yeah. horrify is, I guess, the difference between what I would consider the difference between Hellraiser and the Saw franchise. Mm -hmm. And obviously Hellraiser is a massive influence on cults. Yeah. Um, and I think Hellraiser is exactly the kind of thing you want to go for. Sex is a massive part of uh, Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2, at least. Um, but it's never... It's never grotesque. It's it's scary the way that sex is presented in those movies, um, but it's never just. It never makes you want to vomit. At least speaking yeah. and anecdotally from other people I speak to about movies, whereas Saw, um, Saw isn't a sexual series, but what it does with violence is just kind of how can we top ourselves how can we make it more and more obscene with each yeah. story and that's not to take away from some of the plot elements of Saw and this is where I, I, you will find in interviewing me I go off on long tangents oh please do um, I'm like writing every movie down as like <laughs> I haven't seen that I should maybe check that out <laughs> well so the Saw series doesn't actually have an awful plot uh, in, in there's certainly weak points, a lot mm. of them, uh, but far stronger than the Hellraiser series if you're going beyond the second movie. Yeah. Um, now, what it does do wrong, at least to my tastes, and this is the kind of thing I avoid when trying to insert anything sexual in a game, is the first movie does have some grotesque gory bits in of course mm -hmm. uh, it has the famous scene you know soaring off a foot it has a man trying to climb through razor wire and i think gutting himself on it so it sets the bar pretty high for for vulgarity but then with each successive movie it gets worse and worse and worse it's gotta top itself yeah, and there's an audience for that. Don't get me wrong. That's not me looking down on it because mm. it is a medium that appeals to some people. Um, it just doesn't necessarily appeal to me. Mm -hmm. And so, again, getting back to the point, when I want to represent sex or horror in a game or when I'm writing The Summit, for instance, I'm thinking, okay, so what's a way to present this kind of horror in a way that is unsettling? in a way that is still interactive, in a way that makes players think, but yeah. doesn't just make players recoil and disgust and think, oh, I don't want to play this anymore, it's just cheap, it's just grimy, it's a video nasty. Yeah. Um, so it's a balance. Um, and there's certain subject matters that are very difficult to approach in RPGs because of that reason. Um, some things that are horrifying that could unsettle players that could lead to excellent roleplay are also things that I think are a that one should validly struggle with ever adding to an RPG. Yeah. Because the real question has got to be are the players going to come away from this thinking this was a good experience? Because if they come away from it thinking this just made me feel sick, <laughs> yeah. then yeah, congratulations, you wrote a horror scenario that this person is never going to want to go back to and tackle again. Um, I, I think definitely you kind of see how horror in general has evolved from kind of um, decades ago to, to now. Um, 
but as a writer who's been writing for a, a, a while, um, what are kind of the, the trends that you've seen that have started to evolve and, and where do you think horror, especially in TTRPGs, is heading to? That's such a very good question because the excellent thing about tabletop RPGs is there's so many different games that cover different genres Mm-hmm. and what that means is that it can splay off in all different directions at once and you can very rarely say that something is a trendsetter unless it yeah. sets the market ablaze and very few games set the market ablaze i mean D is always going to be top dog yes there was yeah. a period where it wasn't uh yes vampire the masquerade and pathfinder have uh, topped it at one point or other but in terms of horror I don't know that I could say that horror is progressing in a certain way except Mm -hmm. for individual games. I mean, Vampire the Masquerade is a particularly good example of this because people argue that first edition vampire is all about personal horror. And certainly that was the intention. I wouldn't say that many people ever really played it like that. Second edition starts getting more grandiose. You start dealing with elders and neonates, and so it's a there's a big power struggle element. But people start looking more, the players and storytellers start looking more at what we can do with the elders, because now it becomes about power. Um, revised edition or third edition is more about po- politics. Uh, camps, Camarilla versus Sabat. It's all about yeah. sex area. The Anarchs have been forgotten. The idea of punching up is done away with you've now got conservative society versus ultra religious fanatical society which is an interesting way that vampire evolved and then you have v20 which is of course everything in one big book then you go to v5 and it's all about street level horror it's about personal horror again now characters have touchstones because a lot has been taken from vampire the requiem second edition especially uh which is an excellent game Um, i'll love them all (laughs) yeah um i'm i'm a big fan of both requiem and masquerade for different reasons uh but requiem second edition and v5 have a lot of common dna and i think a lot of people have really got on with the fact that V5 is this street-level horror game where you are more concerned about your mortal relatives, more concerned about the people you run into on your block, in your territory, than what's going on across the globe in terms of anti yeah. waking up and the Sabat War in Camarilla. It's um, why, I, although I'm sure there will be a Sabat book for v5 at some point oh i can't wait that would be pretty cool well well i can't wait but i am worried to a, <laughs> to a probably a pointless degree that when that book comes out this lovely little street level horror utopia that we've been in for the past few years will kind of fade away and we'll re-enter that camera versus sabat phase yeah the larger meta yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the books are written, how the fan base reacts, what the, all the new players that have joined Vampire because of the 5th edition um, well, do with Sabat. Um, so when we look at Cult, Cult is something, well, it's religious horror, it's sexual horror, it's body mm-hmm. horror, and there's not many games that 
do it as well as cult. Uh, I wouldn't say Vampire the Masquerade has ever done those three things quite as well. I mean, Vampire always had uh, Vicissitude, of course. Yeah. But I would say Vicissitude was often used as a sort of freak-out weapon more than a um, an actual expose on what body horror is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you always had a Zimishi with some kind of art gallery with loads of horribly molded statues, but it's like a set piece rather than a, a massive story, you know? Um, and religious horror, we've put some of that into V5 with Cults of the Blood Gods, but Cult Divinity Lost is probably the pinnacle for real introspective religion, religious horror and um, characters examining faith as kind of a weapon and a weakness. Yeah. And yeah, when it comes to sexual horror, again, games are so careful treading around the subject of sex, especially when it comes to um, kink and um, violence and so on, and the depiction of sex and genitals and so on. Mm-hmm. Whereas Cult Divinity Lost is pretty shameless about it, and not in a bad way. I think it handles it in a very mature way, and I th- I'm really proud of the work that the team who put the core book together uh, made on that subject. And yeah, I'm I think that whatever happens with the future books as well will be similarly uh, impressive. Maturity is the buzzword, I think. Cult handles these subjects maturely, intelligently. And um, it should be held in high esteem for that reason. So you have a uh, a scenario coming out uh, with the new uh, product for, for Cult. Um, can you explain a little bit what uh, what you're bringing to the table? <laughs> So on the subject of horror, oh, um, so it's called It Started and Ended with Screams. Initially, my first draft for Started and Ended, ended with Screams, I'll just call it Screams, uh, <laughs> was Petter, Nalo, and myself discussed it actually being in Tarotican way back when. And we decided, no, you know what, this isn't working. So that's when I moved on to the summit. So I came back to it for this upcoming book, and really just rewrote the entire thing outside of the basic premise. Yeah. So this this one is more Island of the Dead-like in the sense that you have one large location uh, with lots of different places you can visit. There's a timeline that goes through it as well. So certain yeah. things are essentially uh, on, a set, on a stopwatch that are going to happen at a certain point, you know? And a fixed cast of NPCs uh, in a location called St. Jude's Home for Troubled Youths. And your characters are the troubled youths. So this is a story that places you in the role of uh, juvenile delinquents, as they would be called in a place like this, um, probably mid to late teens in age. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously all the um, power, abuse, and horror that you might expect in a home for troubled youths, unfortunately, or scent of troubled youths. But on top of that, to add the uh, Gnostic element, the uh, center is being pulled backwards and forwards by a Razid and a Lictor. 
Mm -hmm. um, and ha they have been for the last, I think, 200 years or so, way back when it was a working factory in which families were invited to work. Uh, so a workhouse, essentially, yeah. uh, that was creating small machine parts and the like. And so occasionally the Lictor would win out by making everything utterly industrial and the people work like automatons and the factory would start becoming a gateway into Metropolis. And other times the, uh, in, I guess, the torment on all the individuals that lived there would be so much that it would just be purely about sadism that it would start turning into a gateway into Inferno, and so it would just keep being pulled backwards and forwards. 200 years later, St. Jude's Centre is now St. Jude's Centre. It's now, the, the factory has been renovated and turned into the Centre for Troubled Youths, which is more of a prison than anything else. Anyone who's ever stayed in a... Uh, uh, a hostel like this um, will probably recognize some of the, uh, I guess, accoutrements that, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that surround it um, and the kinds of staff that end up working there, uh, all the way from the individuals who genuinely want to do good but have no budget with which to do it and no means by which to do it. Um, physical or otherwise, uh, through to those who turn a blind eye to all manner of abuses and those who propagate such abuses. Um, and all the other youths that stay there as well, which in some cases are worse than the staff, because yeah. just as in a prison, um, inhabitants in a place like this tend to form a pecking order uh, hierarchy, uh, which tends to be based around, uh, sadly, abuse mm. and bullying. And so this is a story where your characters are given the power at one at some point during the tale to essentially mete out justice or revenge on those who have been making your life a living hell. Yeah. And the issue is, if you kind of make that deal, it's... It's in theory a deal with an angel because you're making a deal with the Lictor to do this and um, it rapidly starts shifting the place in, in favour of Metropolis and then you've got this moral quandary of do you actually help people who have been making your life a living hell while this entire place is collapsing well not even collapsing around you turning into an aspect of the machine city around you uh, or do you say fuck them and uh, jump off the roof and try and run um, which may just result in you dying as you collapse onto the car park if it sounds dismal and miserable that's because it is yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it, it certainly I was very careful with this story to never glorify the idea of the abuse mm -hmm. um, and there's no scenes in it uh, where you are forced to play anything like that. You don't even have to incorporate anything, certainly nothing sexual, into your character's mm -hmm. background or along those lines. Um, but like Island of the Dead, it's very much a toolbox. Uh, there's lots of different backgrounds you can choose for your characters, different components to make up your characters in a slightly more streamlined way, even more streamlined than the core book, which is pretty streamlined already. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's got 
pretty much its own character creation. It's got its own. You have prologues, you have flashbacks, you have therapy sessions with the therapist that oh, works that. in St. Jude's. Um, there's a priest there as well who is trying to you know, save you through faith. There's two incredibly disenchanted teachers who would rather be working anywhere else. Um, there's all kinds of hidden plots going through involving the characters, why they are there, uh, why the NPCs are there, what you know, whether they're being blackmailed to work there, whether they yeah. can't escape either. So there's all kinds of bits of machinery whirring. And at the start, it feels like a very human horror story. Um, like, I'm trying to think of the movie. I think it had a very young... Ben Affleck in actually and uh, the name of it escapes me where he and Brad, a young Brad Pitt as well were in a home much like this um, yeah. but uh, even Robert De Niro as a priest in that movie but anyway uh, I'm getting away from bringing myself. up these amazing like actors I'm like what, what movie is this yeah I'm trying to think now <laughs> Uh, no, I genuinely can't remember the name of it. Um, but it, I don't know that it's it's an okay movie. I'm sure someone who listens to this will know the movie. I'm yeah, make sure about. to post it on the comments so we we know. <laughs> uh, so, what would be kind of the the major theme uh, if you could kind of say in one sentence of your scenario screams? Ooh, hmm. it's tough. I know. Yeah, because I probably wrote it down when I wrote the scenario, but that was a while back. Go <laughs> <laughs> through the notes. Yeah. Um, the, it would be the, the horror and persecution of being trapped within an institution where nobody cares about you except your fellow sufferers. And the only way you can ever escape and find grace is through the assistance of your fellow sufferers and anyone you can redeem along the way. All right. Well, we are just up uh, out of time. Uh, but thank you, Matthew, for an amazing interview. We're so excited to see the scenario as well as everything else you're doing, whether it's uh, They Came From Beneath the Sea, which I am a huge uh, fan of and backer of. Uh, or Cult Divinity Lost, of course, the new scenarios. Uh, any last words for you, Matthew? Not that... <laughs> last words, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this will be my last interview. <laughs> uh, after the release of this one, it may be. Um, hmm, any last words? So I would usually point people towards they came from the sea on backer kit um, if they like science fiction and B-movies. However, I, that backer kit may well have closed down by now because the books are being published. Do yeah, check I it out, though, if so, you can. Yeah. Um, otherwise, uh, do look on MatthewDawkins.com. I have a nearly complete list of credits on there other than things I can't announce. I also have uh, links to things like my Patreon and the ability to send me a cup of tea, which is always nice. I'm not homeless. I don't need you to literally send me a cup of tea. It's, <laughs> it's just a cheap way of asking for money. Um, but yeah, any, any support people can give to my continuing to write in this field professionally because this is my full-time job it's you know what i do for a living is always gratefully appreciated and final thing is a literary recommendation for anyone listening uh 
I do worry sometimes that literature is on the wane and I don't think I'm the only person in the world that thinks that that people aren't reading novels anymore so I've sometimes been asked who my favourite authors are and I usually go for three J's, I go for James Joyce J.G. Ballard and Jane Austen for very different reasons but J.G. Ballard is or was an amazing author who I fear is going to eventually be forgotten by today's um, audiences. And even if the only works of his you pick up are his short story collections, of which there are two complete volumes, uh, you will find inspiration for so many role-playing games in those short stories alone. They are perfect for one-shots. Um, from everything from a game of Stars Without Number to A-State to Cults to uh, Vampire, J.G. Ballard is an amazing author, and I recommend listeners check him out. Definitely. All right. Well, I know I will. Uh, and once again, thank you, Matthew Dawkins, for an amazing interview. Uh, definitely uh, check out his Patreon, his website, everything. Uh, hopefully we can just put it right below uh, whatever you are viewing this on. So you can just go ahead and click it. Send him tea. Uh, I'm really excited <laughs> about that and, and, and tickled by that. Uh, but thank you again, Matthew.